2: Your next stay. Find a stay for any of you when you book direct at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Happy Saturday,
1: everybody. We have a brand new show launching on our network called Everywhere. It's hosted by Daniel Scheffler, and it's all about travel and not just the places to go and the sights to see, but also it's focused on Daniel's travel commandments. These are things like thou shalt travel with a conscience and thou shalt be polite and how these things can become an ideal travel strategy.
2: And I am on this show as well. Uh, Daniel and I do a segment together where usually we talk about the history of something that came up over the course of him discussing his travels because he has led a wild life and has traveled all the places and done some amazing things that you would never expect Uh, and Daniel and I are rather fond of each other so it sometimes dissolves into giggles or uh, snarkiness (laughs) but we both have a really really good time and I hope you have a great time listening to it.
1: So to go along with the travel theme of everywhere today we are revisiting our previous episode on famed traveler Ibn Battuta which originally came out in August of 2017 so enjoy and stay tuned at the end for a peek at everywhere.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So back in the spring of 2016, we did a podcast on Jungha.
2: Remember Jungha? I do indeed.
1: Uh, Zheng He led a fleet of treasure ships on huge and far-reaching voyages from China to Southern Asia, the Arabian Peninsula, and Eastern Africa in the 15th century. And one of the points we made in that episode was that it wasn't necessarily accurate to call Zheng He an explorer, because he wasn't so much exploring as following routes that were known already. And we said that in some cases, they were actually routes that a man named Ibn Battuta had traveled from the opposite direction a century before. Today, we are finally going to talk about Abu Abdullah Mahabid, Ibn Abdullah Ibn Ibrahim Alawati Al-Tanji Ibn Battuta, who has been requested by some listeners, including Julie and Jennifer, and he's commonly just known as Ibn Battuta. Like Jungha, Ibn Battuta wasn't so much an explorer. His travels took him to places that were already known within the Muslim world, and they were part of that world. Uh, Mostly, he traveled along well-traveled routes, but these travels were extensive. He was away from home for roughly 24 years, and during that time traveled through virtually every Muslim nation and territory, becoming the traveler of the age.
2: Ibn Battuta was born on February 25th, 1304, which was the year 703 in the Islamic calendar. We found multiple different conversions of the exact date in the Islamic calendar, so keep that in mind.
1: They differed by one to two days, and I don't trust my
2: own conversion (laughs) enough to rely on that. Uh, He was born in Tangier, which is a port city in Morocco, and although it wasn't Morocco's busiest port, Tangier's position between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic meant that it was a frequent departure point for ships bound across the Strait of Gibraltar to the Iberian Peninsula or to other parts of Europe and Africa. And this meant that although Tangier was a Muslim city, it also saw lots of Christian visitors and merchants who arrived from places like Genoa, Marseille, and Majorca.
1: Apart from the father and grandfather who were referenced in his name, uh, Ibn means son of, We don't really know a lot about Ibn Battuta's family. They were Sunni Muslims who were of an indigenous North African people known as the Lawata, and several were Qadis, or judges, or they were otherwise scholars of Islamic law.
2: Ibn Battuta's upbringing was probably typical for a Muslim child living in northern Africa in the 14th century. He would have attended school either at a mosque or through a private tutor. His early education would have focused on the Qur'an, along with subjects like arithmetic and grammar and literature and history. For students from more prominent families, which Ibn Battuta was, more advanced study followed as children got older.
1: We do know for sure that Ibn Battuta's study of the Quran and of Islamic law were really lifelong. He learned the whole Quran by heart and he wrote of reciting it to himself from beginning to end as he traveled, sometimes twice when he felt like he needed to bolster himself up a little more.
2: And when he was 21 by the Gregorian calendar and 22 by the Islamic lunar calendar, Ibn Battuta began preparing for the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca that is one of the five pillars of Islam. And this was for him a religious duty. It's an obligation for all Muslims who are physically and financially able to go and whose families won't be harmed by their being away. And it was also something he genuinely wanted to do, describing himself as, quote, swayed by an overmastering impulse within me and a desire long cherished in my bosom to visit these illustrious sanctuaries
1: ibn batuta's pilgrimage was also an opportunity to further his education although tangier was a notable port city it wasn't particularly known for its scholars and it didn't have a college So Ibn Battuta's pilgrimage would allow him to study with legal scholars and with Sufi mystics in cities like Tunis, Alexandria, and Cairo along the way.
2: Studying with more prominent scholars was an opportunity for Ibn Battuta to deepen his own knowledge of Islamic law. It's the body of guiding rules and principles that govern Muslims' daily lives and worship, also known as sharia. And enhancing his legal training would give him access to more prestigious work. But this wasn't simply a means to moving up a career ladder. Because the law Ibn Battuta was studying was rooted in the Islamic faith and was inseparable from that faith, his religious and legal educations were also inseparable from one another.
1: On top of the intertwined nature of his religious and legal education, the concept of seeking knowledge is an important part of Islam in general. Both the Quran and the Hadith, which is a record of the sayings and actions of the Prophet Muhammad, have multiple references to learning and seeking knowledge, including how to seek knowledge in a way that's ethical and compatible with Islam. So essentially, seeking knowledge is an act of worship, and it's incumbent upon all Muslims to learn.
2: One hadith that frequently comes up in relation to Ibn Battuta is seek knowledge even as far as China. Although there are some questions about whether that one is correctly attributed, those same basic concepts are definitely present in others.
1: Ibn Battuta left for Mecca on June 14th of 1325, which was the year 725 in the Islamic calendar. Although many pilgrims traveled to Mecca as part of an official organized caravan and Ibn Battuta may have been planning to join a caravan later on in the journey, he initially set off alone over land following the North African
2: coast. And even though Ibn Battuta embarked alone, the Hajj is an annual religious observance. So other Muslims were also setting out for Mecca on their own pilgrimages, generally following the same roads and routes through northern Africa. So after about three weeks, he fell in with two companions, although they separated after they both got sick due to the severe summer heat. One companion actually died, and the other returned that person's body home. A little later in the journey across northern Africa, Ibn Battuta fell ill as well, one of several serious illnesses he contracted during his travels. When someone suggested he stay in a town for a while to recover, Ibn Battuta replied, If God decrees my death, it shall be on the road with my face set toward the land of Hijaz.
1: As he traveled, Ibn Battuta would stop for a time in cities and towns, and the length of his stay would depend on everything from his health to the travel conditions to whether there were important scholars in residence. For example, he spent two months in Tunis studying at the College of the Booksellers and being appointed caddy of a pilgrim caravan when he left there.
2: He also entered into a marriage contract with the daughter of a Tunisian official who was part of that caravan. The two men eventually had some kind of falling out and broke that contract. Shortly thereafter, Ibn Battuta entered into a marriage contract with a different woman, the daughter of another pilgrim who was a scholar from Fez. And she would be the first of several wives and concubines, some of them enslaved, that Ibn Battuta would bring into his life.
1: Ibn Battuta and the company of pilgrims he was traveling with arrived in Alexandria at the Nile River Delta in the early spring of 1326. He stayed there for about a month, visiting holy sites, studying, and also doing some sightseeing, including touring the city's textile district. But eventually he decided it was time to move on again. The timing of his journey and the time that he'd spent in Alexandria meant that at this point he wasn't lined up with the season for pilgrimage caravans anymore, so there was no official company for him to join. He was, once again, on his own.
2: His plan was to follow the banks of the Nile River south to a town near the modern border with Sudan, and from there he would travel overland to the Red Sea, board a boat to Jeddah, and travel overland from there to Mecca,
1: The trip up the Nile took about three weeks, but then when he got to the Red Sea, it turned out that most of the boats in the port had been destroyed during a dispute between the local ruling family and the governor. So he had to turn back, this time taking a boat down the Nile, getting back to Alexandria in about eight days, spending one night there before leaving for Syria.
2: And the reason he only spent one night was that at this point, the season for official travel to Mecca was approaching, and he thought if he made good enough time, he could join a caravan leaving out of Damascus. On the way, he stayed for about a week in Jerusalem, but even so, he got to Damascus with enough time to spare that he stayed there for nearly a month. Although he had been continuing his studies throughout the trip, in Damascus, he continued them formally, earning several official certifications in different law texts.
1: In Damascus, Ibn Battuta finally did join an official caravan bound for Mecca that he stayed with for the rest of the trip there, which we will talk about after a quick sponsor break. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
2: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously.
1: to set out with a large caravan of pilgrims from Damascus on September 1st, 1326. This was more than a year after leaving his home in Tangier. He doesn't specifically say how many people were in this caravan, but it was likely several thousand. uh, Official caravans traveling to Mecca were and are very large. First, they went to Medina, which is about 820 miles, or roughly 1,300 kilometers, away from Damascus. And the travel there took about 50 days. Once there, pilgrims took part in several days of religious rituals, including at the Mosque of the Prophet. And then from Medina, it was another 200 miles, or 320 kilometers, to Mecca, where Ibn Battuta finally arrived in October of 1326.
2: After the Hajj, which involves several days of religious observances and rituals, most pilgrims returned home. But Ibn Battuta did not. Early in his journey, he'd had a dream of a great bird sweeping him away over a far distance. He'd also met an ascetic who told him that he would meet and offer greetings to the ascetic's three brothers, one in India, one in Sindh, and one in China. Sindh is now Pakistan. But aside from these more romantic ideas, Ibn Battuta thought that if he continued to travel, he could continue to learn and to find work as a Qadi. And instead of turning west toward home, he went north and then east toward what's now Iraq in the company of returning pilgrims from that region.
1: Although he did make several stops along the way, his primary goal at this point was to visit the city of Baghdad. Baghdad had been besieged and then sacked during the Mongol invasion in 1258, and that was a little less than 70 years before Ibn Battuta's arrival. That sacking is generally considered to be the end of the Islamic Golden Age. So when Ibn Battuta went there, he was envisioning it as sort of witnessing one of the great cities that had been. He also stopped in most of the major cities in the area and took a tour up the Tigris River.
2: From there, he returned to Mecca with another Hajj caravan, this time staying for at least a year, during which time he both studied and performed the rituals associated with the lesser pilgrimage a number of times.
1: He left Mecca again in either 1328 or 1330, exactly when is a little bit unclear, but whichever it was, he spent the next two years traveling mainly by boat to cities along the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the Arabian Sea. He went as far south as Kilwa on the African coast in what's now Tanzania, but was at the time part of the Kilwa Sultanate. After two years of mostly seafaring wandering, he once again joined a pilgrimage caravan to Mecca, traveling over land across the entirety of the Arabian Peninsula before observing the Hajj for a third
2: time. By this point, Ibn Battuta had learned that the Sultan of Delhi, Muhammad Tughluq, had invited scholars to India and that many who made their way there were finding themselves with prestigious appointments that came along with lavish gifts the sultan had made a practice of specifically filling posts with foreign visitors, and Ibn Battuta hoped to be one of them. But to get there and to get an appointment, he needed a guide who spoke Persian, knew India well, and had contacts there who could help Ibn Battuta on his way.
1: His initial plan seems to have been to try to find such a guide in Jeddah and then to have a relatively straightforward sea voyage to India, but he couldn't find someone with the skills and connections that he needed, so instead he set off on a much, much more circuitous route, overland, perhaps thinking that he might meet someone along the way.
2: He first made his way back to Cairo and from there to the port city of Latakia on the Syrian coast before taking a ship across the Mediterranean Sea to Alanya in Anatolia, on the coast of what is now Turkey. And he then undertook a very roundabout two-year trek that went to Constantinople through the Byzantine Empire, across the Asian steppe, and then through Afghanistan, finally crossing the Indus River in 1333 or 1335. He essentially went quite far to the north, following a zigzagging path between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea before dropping southeast into India.
1: If you look at a map, uh, this was not just an indirect way to go. Crossing the Asian steppe was also far more difficult than going by sea or by following some of the other overland routes. Taking the path that was both the long way and the hard way may have been because Ibn Battuta had already seen several of the cities along the Arabian Sea that they would have passed through if he had gone that way instead he had resolved to never travel a path that he had traveled before if there was some other option available.
2: That seems like it would get so problematic in a hurry. And apparently yeah, if, it did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there, are, there are lots of maps of his voyages online, and there is very little, like, the arrow going two directions on the same right. path. And when it is, it's usually like, okay, yeah, that's, there's not really a different way to go.
2: Ibn Battuta spent about eight years in India, where he was named Qadi of Delhi, although for his first several months there, he spent his time accompanying the sultan on hunting expeditions rather than hearing legal cases. He also had some trouble with money. He had purchased gifts for the sultan, including horses, camels, and enslaved people along the way, with the hope that it was going to help him secure a good appointment. And although his appointment as qadi came with an income, he just didn't have the same pool of wealth as many of the other Delhi elite to draw from. And he was expected to maintain an opulent lifestyle and to spend some of his income on gifts and payments to others. So he was soon in debt.
1: Apart from his financial problems, his years in India overall also weren't particularly easy due to a combination of famines, uprisings, and political intrigue. At this point, India had a majority Hindu population that was being ruled by a minority Muslim government, which led to ongoing uprisings and religious violence.
2: Around 1340, Ibn Battuta was appointed to lead an envoy from Delhi to China, and he left in the summer of 1341. He was tasked with ensuring the safety of a huge retinue, including hundreds of people and gifts, including textiles, dishware, and weapons. Although they traveled under armed guard, they were attacked by Hindu insurgents only a few days out from Delhi. Ibn Battuta was attacked and robbed a second time while waiting for reinforcements after that first incident. And then he became lost for six days after escaping from his captors.
1: After this inauspicious beginning, the expedition ended disastrously in early 1342 when the whole fleet of four ships, at this point they had moved to a sea voyage, was forced aground and wrecked in a storm off the port of Calicut on the southwestern coast of India. Most of their retinue was also killed in this storm and shipwrecks, including the other two highest-ranking officials that had been dispatched from Delhi. Ibn Battuta only survived because he had moved from the junk where the diplomatic envoy was supposed to be sleeping to another ship because the room that was assigned to him on the diplomatic junk was just too small for his taste.
2: Although he wanted to return to Delhi and tell the sultan what had happened, he didn't feel like he could, at least not right away. Not only had the entire retinue and all of its goods been lost on his watch, but he would also have to explain why he had survived while the other officials had not. He'd also lost nearly everything he had in that storm. He wound up stranded for months before finally finding passage to Honavar on the western coast of India on a fleet of ships that belonged to to the sultan.
1: Once he got there, though, the situation was not much better. He had hoped to find a patron and some kind of appointment that would allow him the time and the resources to figure out what he should do next, and perhaps even to recoup some of his lost income. Instead, he wound up spending most of the summer of 1342 in devotional seclusion, praying and reciting the Quran twice through every day. He was basically offered housing in a like this one person's room, and he was like, yeah, I don't really have work for you. You can just stay here, though. So he basically
2: stayed there in prayer for months. And finally, he decided to go to China on his own, staying for a time in the Maldives and acting again as Kadi before going on to China by sea. By this point, he had been to so many places and could tell stories of so many other courts that he was received enthusiastically and he was compensated generously.
1: Once he left the Maldives, there's some dispute about exactly how far into China he did go, in part because he didn't give a lot of detail about China when he wrote about his travels. This lack of detail has led some critics to suggest that he did not go to China at all. And while he probably did not get nearly as far as the account of his trip suggests, with some of that probably being embellished when it was being written— He almost certainly did visit the more southeastern parts of China. His lack of detail is more likely because the Muslim population there was relatively small, and that was really what he was most interested in learning from and writing about. So he just had a lot less interest in China and a lot less to say about it.
2: And it was after visiting China that Ibn Battuta decided, at last, to return home after undertaking the Hajj one last time. We're gonna talk about all of that after we have a little sponsor break. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash
1: Finally abandoning the idea of returning to India to explain what had happened to the convoy, Ibn Battuta began working his way toward home in 1347 by way of one last pilgrimage to Mecca. That would be his fourth during his lifetime. Rather than waiting for the next pilgrimage season, he took a wandering route through Persia, Iraq, Syria, and Egypt. And in Damascus, Syria, he learned that his father had died about 15 years before.
2: He decided to travel to Aleppo in the summer of 1348, which turned out to be just as the Black Death began moving through the region. And for the next several months, his travels took him through cities and towns that were ravaged by the plague. For a time, he got ahead of the spread of the disease, but it caught up with him again in Mecca, where he spent four months awaiting the hajj.
1: After his fourth hajj, he began traveling finally toward Tangier. But once he arrived there, after his decades of absence, he learned that his mother had died of the plague only about six months before.
2: Ibn Battuta didn't stay at home for long. He soon set out once again for a brief tour of Granada across the Strait of Gibraltar, followed by a return to Africa and a tour to the south, crossing the Sahara Desert to the Kingdom of Mali and the city of Timbuktu. Ibn
1: Battuta finally returned to Fez, which was then the capital of Morocco, in 1354. And as far as we know, he spent the rest of his life in or near Morocco. The sultan, Abu Inan, asked him to write an account of his journey. And in doing this, Ibn Battuta worked with an amanuensis, Ibn Juzay, who was also a court poet. Ibn Juzay made his language poetic, added some actual poems, and probably embellished a few things while also bringing Ibn Battuta's account in line with literary standards of the time.
2: The end result of all this work was finished on December 13, 1355. Its full Arabic title roughly translates to a gift to those who contemplate the wonders of cities and the marvels of traveling. It's more commonly known as the Rila, although Rila is really a genre, essentially a travelogue within Islamic literature.
1: Ibn Battuta's Rila chronicles his travel through essentially the entire 14th century Muslim world. He had gone 75,000 miles, or 120,000 kilometers. That is three times farther than Marco Polo's journeys and three times the circumference of the earth. Along the way, he visited what's now 40 different modern countries he met at least 60 heads of state and a wealth of lesser leaders and dignitaries, and he served as an advisor to at least 12 different rulers. He also met all three brothers of the Ascetic that he had heard about so early in his journey and did indeed offer them greetings.
2: The rela is about 1,000 pages long. And since he was reconstructing it from memory after the end of his travels, its chronology is sometimes a little bit mixed up or vague. But otherwise, it stands as a wide-ranging account of what the Islamic world was like in the 14th century. The world was, and still is, huge, but is not at all monolithic. Its people are united by the core belief in the Quran and by the idea that the tenets of Islam create a bond that is greater than ethnicity or race.
1: Yeah, if you're if you're looking at the chronology of his travels and you kind of go, does that make sense? <laughs> you may have even thought, does that make sense in some of this episode so far? It's because he was basically reconstructing it later on and and sometimes talking about places that he passed through more than one time. So, sometimes it little seems a little mixed up. As Ibn Battuta traveled, he observed the diversity of Islam, seeing how it was filtered through Arab, Persian, Turkish, and Mongol cultures. He wrote about how people worshipped, how they interpreted the law, and what their holy sites were like, along with describing the cities themselves and their cuisine and their environment and things like whether they were clean.
2: The book gradually reveals some of Ibn Battuta's personality and tells us a little about the worldview of an educated, devout 14th century Muslim. He was a pious man who could sometimes come off as a bit of a busybody, even beyond what might be expected of a man whose job was to be a judge. But he was also gregarious and highly curious about the world. Otherwise, though, there's really very little about his personal life. For example, he married at least seven women and he had children with at least some of them in addition to having numerous concubines. Although none of these people play a part in the text beyond the mention of their marriage or occasionally their death. And we also get nothing about his homecoming and what happened when he met friends and family that he'd been separated from for almost a quarter of a century or when he learned how many of them had died in the Black Death.
1: And this was really typical of writing at the time. It was not considered really appropriate to be talking about your personal business in public anyway. So it would have been doubly inappropriate if he had filled his book up with a lot of personal details about his life. So, like, that is not atypical at all. Also, when we say he comes off sometimes as a bit of a busybody... Uh, the story that to me typifies that the best is there was there's one part in his relo where he writes about going into a bathhouse and some of the men didn't have waste coverings on, and his response to this was to go to the governor of the town and to tell the governor of the town that there were some men in the bathhouse that didn't have waste coverings on, and then get the governor all riled up about it, <laughs> followed by uh, a crackdown on whether there were waste coverings in uh, the bathhouses. On the one hand, uh, there, was, there was expected that men would have waist coverings on. right. On the other hand, there were definitely a lot of people involved in the situation who were like, man, Ibn Battuta, find he, your business. <laughs> he went
2: right to escalation on that one. <laughs>
1: yeah. So the the a lot of people uh, in their descriptions of, of, of Ibn Battuta use words like kind of a fuss budget <laughs> or a little judgmental uh, and that, that kind of... Uh, That kind of account is why. So this book was largely unknown until the 19th century, even in the Arabic-speaking world. Although various editions exist in libraries in North Africa and the Middle East, dating from the time after it was written, it does not seem to have been very widely read between the 14th and 19th centuries. However, in a Weird turn of events. French scholars found five manuscripts in Algeria after the French occupied Algeria in the 1830s. And these scholars began trying to piece together translations. A lot of the first translations in English were very heavily abridged, unsurprisingly, because it is a thousand pages long. And a complete English language translation project started in 1929. The Hackliott Society, which is an English society that publishes scholarly editions of primary source texts about travel and geography, which is an amazingly specific (laughs) mission, uh, published the first three volumes by the mid-20th century. But the fourth volume didn't come out until, I think, 1994,
2: And it's actually unclear when Ibn Battuta died, although it was in the year 700 in the Islamic calendar, which would have been 1368 or 1369. A tomb in Tangier is traditionally considered to be his, but we don't actually know if that's the case.
1: Today there's also a shopping mall named for him in Dubai. (laughs) And its courts are all themed after places that he went. And uh, a lot of commentators are like, not sure if Ibn Battuta th- would have thought this was cool or not. Yeah, he like he he did. I mean, obviously, he traveled for almost a quarter of a century in a time when travel was a lot more uncomfortable and and time consuming than it is in a lot of the world today. Yeah. <laughs> but the like the fact that um, he he was so particular about things uh, sometimes people are like would Ibn Battuta walk in here and be like oh yeah this is cool I like the look of this place or would he be more like mm, not sure
2: yeah we don't know
1: don't really know Stuff you missed in history class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel Schäffler, and I have some strong feelings about travel. I would love for you to listen to my new travel podcast called Everywhere. I've spent the majority of my life circling the globe. I have fed stray dogs in Cairo for a day been tattooed in the back of a jewellery store in Istanbul, and I've joined a chef to seek out new sources of protein in the Amazon. So I want to tell you how I travel, and how you could. I don't like lists, or must-dos. I don't care about aspirational luxury nonsense. In fact, let's throw out that word luxury while we're at it. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or not, alone or with your personal people, you can always have an amazing adventure. All you need is to open your mind. Don't think about what I'm telling you. Feel it. It's not head knowledge, it's all heart knowledge. Come with me and I'll show you everywhere. Every week over two seasons, I will take you to different places from New Jersey to New Delhi, from Disney to Denmark and share some magical experiences and stories. I'm also including interviews from travel connoisseurs like the CEO of Starbucks, Kevin Johnson, designer Kelly Wurstler, and the director of the Smithsonian Museum of American Art, plus some soon-to-be-revealed iHeartMedia stars, too. Listen and subscribe to everywhere at Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: work.